This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Soraya Dean. She's lead organizer for Women's Initiatives and Partnerships for the Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership here in Chicago, Illinois. She has been working as a lawyer, an interfaith consultant, and an expert on nonviolent communication, dialogue, and conflict resolution, as well as peacemaking. And she led the first Women's Leadership Conference to counter violent extremism and radicalization in Northeast Nigeria. She's recently returned from Toronto, Canada, where she and her colleagues were awarded the Paul Caruso Award by the Parliament of the World's Religions. Soraya Dean, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. I'm so glad to be here. So I'm interested, first of all, to get a little bit of your background. You have been working for many years in conflict resolution with a faith focus. How did you get involved in that work? I uh, am a lawyer by profession. Uh, I'm a mother. Uh, I was highly involved in raising my kids when... Uh, my seven-year-old son uh, in 2015 came, uh, I had gone to school to pick him up from school. He came sobbing, uh, and I'm a Muslim, and he asked me, Mommy, are we terrorists? And that was a defining moment in my life. Uh, and I knew that circumstances don't have to define who we are, and we all have the capacity to change those circumstances. So that really propelled me into activism, where I started working within my community and trying to bridge the, the communities, the Christians, Muslims, and people of all faith. Because I realized, you know, Napoleon once said, religion is a powerful tool that can divide people. And I was very mindful of that. And I started working in the area of build, promoting interfaith understanding. So your son came to you and said, Mommy, are we terrorists? First of all, did you, I, I'm sure you asked him, where did he hear this? Where did he get this idea? Yes, yeah, so it was 9-11. And his school, they had a discussion, and his teacher said, all Muslims are terrorists. And David, it goes further. I don't even talk about this that deep, because then they had asked, the teacher had asked any Muslims in the room. And he was just seven. He said, Mommy, I put my head down on the table. I was so scared. Uh, so uh, there's a deeper dimension to it where a little child was traumatized. Uh, so I, I took that very seriously. Well, this is now... Nearly two decades later, how how has he matured in his faith, and how has he come to view his faith in light of that early experience and your work? Mm. Oh my gosh, a, a, a huge awakening! So I realized that the, some of the breakdown would have happened in my home where I did not teach him enough, you know. Uh, and this is what I always tell parents: peacemaking 
is a process of education and it should begin in our homes. Uh, so uh, I, I gave him a very strong identity of whom he was. First, of course, that he was American. And then, of course, he was Muslim. And in the process of, of having those conversations, uh, you mentioned the teacher saying all Muslims are terrorists. It sounds like there was hostility. Um, did that hostility continue or was it abated somewhat as the years as the years went by? So I personally thereafter went to meet the teacher and I, in fact, took him uh, a religious, the, the Quran, and I gave it to him and I, I, I discussed this with him. And he didn't even seem to realize the damage he had done. So this is, I think, careless banter. Uh, 9-11 is a very scary day for Muslims because we don't know whether we will be loved or lynched. The hostilities did not continue. There was no repeated bullying of him at all. Well, that's good to hear. And it sounds like it was a moment of education for the teacher as well, an opportunity to meet face-to-face and to have an encounter where the stereotype could be broken down. First of all, am I characterizing that interaction correctly? Yes, yes, yes. And this is a huge learning moment for me because that is why my work is centered around promoting intentional interfaith dialogue. So we have to be intentional, and I was able to speak to the teacher and correct, uh, clear the air and talk to him about it. So that was a huge learning and growing moment for him, for me, for all of us. Unpack for me what this phrase means, intentional interfaith dialogue. What is what is specific about that, or how does that model work? So I say it should have three components. One is uh, we take personal responsibility to build this relationship. If I don't know, uh, let's say, David, you are, uh, you are a Zoroastrian, and I don't know what Zoroastrianism means, I intentionally befriend you uh, rather than uh, hear uh, outside sources tell me how bad or how, how weird your religion or your faith is. So that is in te- taking personal responsibility. And then I talk about theological hospitality. That means my willingness to go to his place of worship, and his willingness to come to mine. We're hospitable to each other. We're learning and growing in this. And the third component I add is productive unity. Uh, We are living in dangerous times. I think more than us, it's our children who are inheriting this world from us. So productive unity is a critical component of all interfaith action. What can we do together? I think Shanta, the president of Omnia, he says, uh, the hammer theology where we get together, hammer a nail into a building and build something. Uh, So that kind of work, how can we uh, do a community service project? How can we go to a classroom and uh, teach children, not maybe not theology, but at least what it is to have friendships? So things like that, to be productive in our unity. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, so responsibility, hospitality, and unity are the sort of three cores of of the model that you're talking about. And it, it sounds like it starts with face-to-face relationship. First of all, have I characterized it correctly? Yes. Okay. So I'm interested since my assumption would be that you want to have this be not just a local, but something with global effect. How do you scale up from face-to-face relationship to a more global impact, to to a greater sort of sense of connection? How does that work exactly? Okay. So we build intentional relationships. As you said earlier, I am uh, Omnia's outreach uh, contact person for women's initiatives and partnerships. But I also wear many other hats. I live in Los Angeles and I'm the president of the Interfaith Solidarity Network. 
So my city has 1.7 million people and I have a large mandate to bring people together. So when, when, when the tragedy at Pittsburgh occurred, we had originally planned a march. It's called the Solidarity March. We march from the mosque to the temple to the synagogue. And the rabbi at the temple would speak at the mosque and the reverend at the church might speak at the synagogue. And uh, we had over 1,000 people join us. So um, we have a powerful team of board members and we do a lot of outreach. So I think um, slowly but steadily building friendships, coming together, showing up for each other. And there's wonderful things that can be done. So Miles Horton from the Highlander Folk School back east talked about what he called the long haul, where you were helping with education, you were helping with relationship building, and you knew that it wasn't going to be an overnight thing. It had to be something where you were showing up repeatedly, you were creating these relationships and tending to these relationships. It sounds to me like you have a very similar sort of approach here. This is this is a long haul kind of work where you are, you're working over years, not over days, to try and mend these relationships and to keep this awareness alive about the importance of these kinds of conversations. So first of all, have I got that correct? You absolutely have. I always say hard work is hard work. <laughs> uh, several years ago, I, I ran the Los Angeles Marathon. So I thought one of the hardest uh, and the longest journeys would be the marathon. But then I realized even for us, you know, the longest journey is from the head to the heart. Uh, <laughs> so we need to stay connected and we have to have a certain amount of faith and belief in humanity and the and the harmony of all religions. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a slow walk. It's a steady walk. I mean, you, sometimes you take 10 steps, you take eight steps back. Even during the march, we had a lot of resistance from conservative synagogues to us, to several of our planners. What are you doing with the Muslims, you know? These are questions that get asked every day. And I'm a person who thrives on the difficult questions because every question is valuable. If something bothers you, I think it's 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 only um, civil and it is only um, proper that we sit across each other and, of course, learn a nicer way of communicating, not the language of blame and shame, but the language of curiosity. So one of my expertise is also on nonviolent communication. So help me understand and help my listeners understand when we use the phrase nonviolent communication, what does that mean specifically? How is that different from just talking? Okay, it's a huge, huge difference. It's like, uh, you know, it was, I think it was Mark Twain said, the difference between lightning and a thunderbolt, <laughs> the use of the right word. So simply put, we all eat pizza, right? Let's say, David, you, uh, somebody saved you a slice of pizza. And I come into the room before you and I eat your slice of pizza. <laughs> and you are very, very hungry. So you could say, hey, Soraya, you are so inconsiderate. or I mean, you've been so greedy, you ate my slice of pizza. Or you could say, you know, there were three slices of pizza that was mine, and I see that you have eaten it. So that's an observation. What we need to do, David, is we need to shift our language from that of blame and shame to one of our ability to observe without judging. You know, Krishnamurti, I'm from South, South Asia, Sri Lanka originally. Uh, he says the highest form of intelligence is to observe without judging. And this is a very liberating uh, place to be because when you don't blame, when you don't shame... It's not because uh, you're kind to the other person. I always say it's being kind to myself. <laughs> well, and so as you are doing this work and as you're moving through these various realms of communication, we will 
begin to unpack that as our conversation continues, but we're going to take a quick break. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Soraya Dean. She is lead organizer for women's initiatives and partnerships with Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Soraya Dean. She's lead organizer for women's initiatives and partnerships at Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership here in Chicago. So you mentioned Shanta Premordana, who is the head of Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership, and you've mentioned a little bit about the work that you do, but why don't you tell me and our listeners a little bit more about Omnia and what its work entails? Okay. Um, so Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership is where we focus on religious extremism and we uh, really address religion-based oppression, dominance, and violence. Uh, and Shanta has given me a huge mandate to really work with the women because I feel I believe that patriarchy is an institution. It's no more a one-man show. We are coming to realize as we discuss issues and as, as revelations unfold that this is an institutionalized uh, phenomena. So what I do predominantly is work for Omnia in building a women's network because even the United Nations has recognized that 70% of peace negotiations fail because women are not at the table. And, and I teach these women, not only should you sit at the table, you should get the best seat because if you don't sit at the table, you'll be in the menu. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that before. So if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Yeah. yeah. So you used a word a moment ago that I know will be a word that will set off some alarms for some of my listeners, this word patriarchy. So when you use this word, what do you mean by that word? Okay. Patriarchy is a male-dominated world where men, I say in my community, men with beards, <laughs> they tell us what to believe, how to believe, what to think and how to think. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's essentially a male-dominated world where women are excluded. So when, such, when decisions are made in the region of religion, excluding women, I think I personally believe that it is one of the foundational causes for violent extremism because women can be great teachers. Women can be great scholars. And I think it's critical to show our children that women have also an agency with their creator. And so as you do this work, I imagine that there are not only religious barriers, but cultural barriers and political barriers. Is, first of all, is that correct? Absolutely, David. Absolutely. Because let me just share with you, last year, I was in Nigeria for Omnia. We did three women's workshops. I trained over 1,000 women. And patriarchy is a huge, debilitating issue in, in Nigeria. And if it impacts those women so one of the things that they suffer from is this issue of polygamy. Uh, when I landed in Nigeria during one of my trips, uh, there was a man by the name of Muhammad who came to pick me up. And I was just chatting with him as we drove to the training site and I asked him how his children were and how many children he had. He had 15 children. But from multiple wives, it from sounds. From four wives, from yes. Four wives. 
So I was stunned and I just asked him, well, how do you do this? What, what is the justification? And of course, he went into the religion. Uh, you know, my, my prophet did it, therefore I need to do it. And this is not fair and this is wrong. Because uh, when you read the text in the Quran, polygamy is not prohibited, but it is not overtly permitted. But depends that the Quran specifically says you can marry two, three, four times to take care of an orphan. But these men in Nigeria and more men everywhere in the world, they are marrying not to take care of orphans because they have to satisfy some of their needs and manliness. I don't know. I don't know why they do it. So making women understand, question their men. I think uh, Dr. King said nobody can ride your back unless it's bent. So not bending the back is asking the right question. So to hide under the banner of theological justification is, is not fair for the thousands, the millions of Muslims who are not following this uh, particular uh, part of the theology. And to justify it in the name of the religion is wrong because I see most of these children who are born in Nigeria, at a very young age, they are sent to religious schools and they're indoctrinated. And when they leave those schools, they are not properly parented. They, there's economic necessity. There's lack of opportunity. All of those things come together and they are highly susceptible to be recruited by the Boko Haram. Uh, this, I'm talking particularly about Northeast Nigeria. So this, this is a, a conversation that happens in Christian communities as well. And the, the kind of theological concept that is often used is the notion of gender complementarity, that the creator created males and females to have different roles within society, different roles within the family, and that to and I'm scare quoting now, to confuse those roles or to mix those roles is to go against the will of God. Mm. So that's a powerful message that I think is transcending not only the Christian tradition, but it sounds like it's also in the Muslim tradition. Mm. It's in the Jewish tradition. It's in many major traditions. How do you begin to dismantle that kind of very strong idea that God wants it this way? Mm. Mm. Yeah, so some of our theologies were contextual. It was relevant for 2,000, 3,000 years ago. Uh, today's times have changed. Men are not the sole breadwinners. Women are working. And what I insist, I know what my husband can do and what I can do are two different things. But I, I insist that we be given equal opportunity, even though outcomes may vary. So we need equal opportunity. And, and yeah, the reality is outcomes can vary. So understanding that Whatever patriarchy existed was a, was a theological construct and it was contextual. So how do I dismantle it? We really ask people what their challenges are and we, we take the challenges to the theology. We don't bring the theology to the challenge because uh, that has been done all along. Uh, this is what he, why Omnia is very unique. It's a grassroots movement. We empower people. We go, we listen, live and learn from them. And we ask them what their questions are. And we ask them, what does your theology say to this issue? And oftentimes, most people don't know. Then we say, go back and discuss it with your uh, leaders. And then if it is not compatible, we, call what is we say what is called praxis. We have to do something about it. Because doing nothing is not an option. So if I heard you correctly, you don't take the theology to the practice. You take the practice to the theology. Yes. And so you don't start with an idea about how something should be. You look at, if I'm following correctly, 
how the situation on the ground actually is. Yes. And then you don't try and apply some sort of magical rubric to put on it to say, well, it should be. You instead say, okay, how how can we begin to understand this? And in understanding this, how can we begin to change this? Mm-hmm. Do I have the mechanism correct? Yes, yes. And how does this current situation relate to the theology that I have been taught. Mm. So there will be a group of people who will say, no, no, no matter what, I'm going to stick to the theology. Well and good, you know. <laughs> uh, but what I, what I always insist also is that shared authority. It's very critical in the, in the arena of theological studies. Uh, we have to have dignity of, uh, and respect for diversity of thought. Uh, one of the reasons why we quarrel so much, intrafaith and interfaith quarrels are based on a superiority of ideas. Well, and some of that superiority of ideas, I think, comes from the assumption that God has given me this truth, mm. and anyone who speaks differently is just out of line with that truth. And we can find that certainly in my tradition with the Christians. We can find that in certain Muslims. We can find that in many different faiths. When we encounter that, that's a very strong obstacle. Mm. And it's difficult to pull someone away from that belief if, they, if they're wedded to it. And, and it sounds like what you are asking of people who have maybe grown up or who have been taught to hold on to this idea of their personal correctness, you're asking for a great leap of faith. And, and when, you, when you make that leap of faith, how do you help them to trust that the step that they're taking is a step that not only is good for dialogue, but is also perhaps what God wants them mm. to do? I think relationship building is critical. You don't make that request right away. I have a friend I'm working on still, working on in the sense not in a, in a compulsive way. Uh, she's an evangelical Christian. She refuses to come to my mosque. But what I do is I send my daughter to her church because her best friend is goes to the youth group. So I, I am broadening the horizons for my daughter because that's how I was raised. Uh, my father would always say, all rivers flow to the same sea. I think it was Gandhi who said that. So it all our ideas, I think our values, we derive from many sources. One is religion, the childhood, school, parents, and it defines us. So I think if each one of us take that journey, whether to open ourselves or close ourselves. So as your daughter has been going to this evangelical church, has she come back with any questions or has that led to some interesting conversations between you and her? Very interesting conversations. Yeah, she she challenges me. She's like, Mom, how can that be true? They said this. Is it possible? And I love that curiosity. So you don't find that threatening? Not at all. Okay. Not at all. I just want her to be a citizen of the world because there's goodness in every religion and there's some bad. And people choose to practice the way they choose. I want her to really be respectful of all faiths. Well, and we started this portion of the conversation talking about that Omnia, the organization that you're working with, is focused on extremism. And you mentioned Boko Haram. And certainly I think that my listeners would be familiar with Muslim extremism. But we need to admit that there is extremism in all religions, not just truth and goodness in all religions, but the, but also we can find not just in Christianity and Judaism, we can find extremism, but also in Buddhism and Hinduism. And so how do we begin to address this problem of extremism? How do we begin to look at it in a way that we can be productive in addressing it in a way that doesn't lead to more extremism? Does mm. that question make sense? Yes. I think, David, some of the, sometimes we activists, we can be overzealous. We want to bring peace to the Middle East. I said, no, that's that's not possible 
let us let our goal be peace in the neighborhood peace in our home and i have always found out the collective consciousness emerges and when we grow broad and wide in a loving way people look at us and with the interfaith solidarity network i have i have seen it and even with the work we do with omnia we work to build interfaith peacemaker teams we bring christians and muslims together and we ask them to ask each other the tough questions and then we gradually build a relationship trust i think trust and safety are critical human needs and when we build those two something beautiful flourishes if you're just joining us this is things not seen i'm david dalt we're speaking today with saraya dean she's lead organizer for women's initiatives and partnerships with omnia institute for contextual leadership we'll be back in a moment Hey folks, this is David. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a frontlines on the ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. I'm speaking today with Saraya Dean. She's lead organizer for women's initiatives and partnerships with the Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership here in Chicago, Illinois. Well, we've talked a lot about how the work that you do depends upon the establishment of personal relationships and connections of hospitality. And I'm aware that you have done that in your own personal life, mother to mother. And I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about a project you've been working on called the Peace Moms how it got started and what its goals are. Mm. Uh okay so David when I first came to the United States I lived with a Christian family. They didn't care if I was Muslim. They didn't care what my background was. That was the level of trust Americans had of each other 20 years ago. So they welcomed to me to their home. I lived with them and their daughter Nadine Pa and I uh, built a strong friendship. her daughter is uh, 15 now and so is my daughter and they are best of friends yes so it 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 began with the premise that uh, a mother's heart is a child's classroom so we thought if we can educate moms to really uh, know each other uh, to to bring interfaith dialogue into our homes into our dinner tables because what we teach our children at the dinner tables are very crucial today so that we 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 built a foundation and built this organization called peace moms so i have gone to many churches but i would love to go into more uh, i have taken her to many mosques and she together we would love to do more work because i think uh, it's it's critical that we engage and involve uh, women and mothers so first of all i want to take a step back you said when you first came to america and you lived with this family they didn't care that you were muslim 
what I want to make sure my listeners understand, you don't mean that they were indifferent to you. They weren't cold to you, but rather they, they didn't feel threatened by the fact that you were a Muslim. Is, yes, did, did I yes, hear that correctly? Yes. And, and you say this was two decades ago, so this would have been a few years before 9-11. Yes. Okay. And yes. so and so 9-11 began to change that conversation nationally. And uh, it sounds like it didn't change this relationship between you and this family. Not at all. It strengthened it because they saw me for who I was. And through my lens, they saw my community. And I saw them for who they were. And through that lens, I was able to see the community, the Christian community at large. And this is why it is so critical. We are constant ambassadors for our community, for our faith, for our role as a mother, uh, as an interfaith activist. And so you've been going as a pair into both churches and mosques. What sort of message do you deliver? Do you speak each from your own experience? Do you speak in dialogue? How, help me and my listeners understand what that looks like when you come into one of those situations. Mm. So first, we we have uh, Building Bridges. That's a workshop we've been doing. You know, lots of people, David, they don't even know their own faith. <laughs> we ask some critical questions about what are what does your faith say about this, this, and this? And do you know what the Muslim faith says about this, this, and this? So oftentimes, people don't know. So then we share knowledge, we share ideas. And what is really profound is our ability and willingness to go to visit another person's place of worship. So when we take a car full of people to a mosque or to a synagogue and and make them see and feel and uh, really um, experience a service, the doors open, relationships form, existing relationships strengthen and when that happens, I imagine that some are very open to that experience. I would imagine that others are afraid. First of all, if you've observed some being afraid in that moment, what are they afraid of? And then how do you help to address and assuage that fear? Mm. Um, so I, I also believe that, you know, I, somebody said this, every enemy is somebody you don't know. So where I remember typically when I, my friend uh, Nadine, she lives in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So when I go there, first we have uh, like a coffee and snacks and hors d'oeuvres and we invite about 10 to 15 women. So we have, actually, um, I think I I blend well with the communities uh, and that has been a huge advantage to me. I very specifically don't have defined roles. I'm a Muslim, therefore I'm this. Uh, I see the larger picture. So that has helped me always. And then... People are nice people. It is, it is. I mean, incredibly heartening, you know. They want to know questions, how, what, and when you answer those questions. And there's no difficulty to say, I won't, I won't want to get to know you because you're a Muslim. I've never had that experience. I was going to ask, do you ever find that there is, because it sounds like that most people, as you said, are kind and are willing to be hospitable. And at the end of the day, they understand that uh, it's a human being on the other side of this divide. Mm. But I'm also aware that we live in dangerous times mm-hmm. and that there are some who are very committed to creating others mm-hmm. who are always going to be enemies, always going to be defined by the stereotype. And there's no way of knocking them away from that mm. belief system. So what are the limits to this? Mm. Or how, or you, you say that you you've in these situations, you haven't encountered anyone who isn't willing to kind of go to that place of hospitality. Mm. So you've had great success, mm. but are there limits to this? And wh- where do we, where do we encounter those limits? Mm. And how do we, how should we react when we 
run up against those mm. limits? Mm. Oh, sure. Great question. Initially, of course, I must not fail to say this. I've been speaking at churches and then I have seen, I have had people who sit in the front row and throw have thrown the Quran at me and said, this book is really violent, you know. And that's that has happened. And I had my children sit in the first row and my son once came crying, mommy, are you okay? You know? And I have friends who came in hundreds and stood by me. So those things don't really fear, put fear into me or sway me. And I've also realized, David, in this work, you must be very mindful where you put your energy. Haters will hate, lovers will love. <laughs> so I, I believe in a larger universe and I have not had a, a recent uh, occasion to really go deeper into relationship with them because they come, they show up when there's an event, then they challenge me and throw the book and say Islam is violent and all of that. And I remember once there was a group, they followed me to several venues. Uh, but that is really pushes me to do more because they, they're doing that because they don't know me. And I don't think it's the right thing. I don't think their faith tells them to do that. Uh, and sometimes I say, uh, you have the book, but I have the spirit. <laughs> well, I was going to ask about this. So as a, as a person who does activism as a core of your vocation, I'm aware that it can be very tiring. It can be exhausting. And so how do you perform self-care? What sorts of things do you do to make sure that you are surrounded by those kinds of support systems? Uh, help me and my listeners understand how it is that you're able to sustain this work over the long haul. Mm, okay. So, yeah, there have to be some spiritual practices. Sometimes I might meditate for one hour, but sometimes two if the day has been challenging, it's really necessary. Something I find is we who are peacemakers, we are not peaceful. So <laughs> taking that extra hour to really ground ourselves. So the bottom line is, David, if we believe in our thoughts, they become our experience. I think <laughs> we have to put a distance between our thoughts. Everything we think is not the truth. And I'm told that for a day we have about 80,000 thoughts, most of which are negative. And then we go back to bed, we recycle, we wake up in the morning, we watch TV, we add more negative thoughts. The cycle continues. I think being mindful, uh, something that helps me is meditating every morning, if, sometimes in the afternoon and also in the night. Because to be in a state of thoughtlessness is powerful and it's very difficult. So some people might, it might be walk, it might be reading a book. For me, the refugees uh, in meditating. And then also, I practice nonviolent communication. And so when you practice nonviolent communication, that means that you're building self-care into your interactions? Yes, because I refuse to judge, blame, and shame. Because I feel anything you do, David, is only can only be a trigger. But if I react in a certain way, I have to take responsibility for that. And so if I'm understanding you correctly, when you are interacting in these moments, you are paying attention to how the interactions are making you feel, to what sort of spirit they're bringing. And what I also heard very clearly is that we are shaped by our attitudes and the thoughts that we put into our, our stream of consciousness. Yes. And we, what we believe. Yes. So I'm hearing in that a resonance to someone that you mentioned earlier, Krishnamurti. This sounds a lot like the wisdom that he would sometimes talk about in his communications. First of all, do I have that? Is that the source or are you drawing this from Gandhi or where are you drawing this from? Okay, so I uh, have learned from Dr. Marshall Rosenberg. He's the founder of the Center for Nonviolent Communication. In uh, Several years ago, 
uh, we uh, took a peace train from Los Angeles and we went to San Francisco. And I was introduced to this concept of nonviolent communication. And I just ran with it because I felt that was the missing link in peacemaking. Because our words have power. It could build a relationship or it could kill one, you know. Uh, so being mindfully be able to clarify a question and not to judge the other person, but to really be present uh, are powerful tools that we should all use. You've mentioned in the last few minutes meditation and being present. Some of my listeners will identify those as very Eastern concepts. Those that might be threatened by the idea of, and I'm again scare quoting, kind of foreign ideas of meditation and mindfulness, what would you say to assuage their fears or to help them to feel more confident in exploring this as a technique for their own practice of spirituality? Mm. I think no practice is out of limits. <laughs> we should be willing to explore. And meditation, uh, you know, the Buddha 5,000 years ago, uh, he talked about neuroplasticity of the brain. Uh, he taught us, you know, uh, what you think is critical, don't have to think everything, be in a state of nothingness. All of those things are very relevant to today. Uh, today, we are Western medicine and science is evolving in these ideas and knowledge. Uh, and we have a lot of ancient wisdom from the East. And uh, I would really urge people to try it out before saying no. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Soraya Dean. She's lead organizer for women's initiatives and partnerships with the Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership in Chicago, Illinois. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago. And that's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me, but if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Soraya Dean. She's lead organizer for Women's Initiatives and Partnerships with the Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership here in Chicago, Illinois. Well, in this conversation, we've talked about your work as an organizer and as a person who practices nonviolent communication. We've talked about your work with the Peace Moms and going in dialogue into both churches and mosques. We've talked about your work internationally. Uh, in Nigeria and in other locations where you're confronting patriarchy directly, sometimes very deeply in, entrenched in institutional patriarchy. So y your experience is vast. 
And you have seen not only this happen on a local level, but you have seen the global effects of the problems that we face right now. So first of all, for my listeners that may only have the context of Christianity or only have the context of, of Chicago as a background, what would you say to them about what they need to know about the world that we're facing in 2018, moving into a century of great upheaval and change? I think fundamentally to remember, we are all one and we have the same challenges. As we point one finger, to be mindful that three fingers are pointing at us and to be very supportive of people who are on the ground doing this work. And for me personally, as a Muslim woman, I face a lot of challenges from within the community because we are still very highly patriarchal. So I can do this work without support from my Christian sisters and brothers, from my Muslim sisters and brothers, from everybody. So be a bastion of support and give your presence and uh, I, I would say I would say that it would be very necessary fundamental in what I have to share as you look back at your experiences doing this work internationally what are some things that we Americans need to know about the world that maybe we're not getting from the news mm -hmm. I focus uh, David largely on women our struggles are universal uh, and uh, if we can support one another and uh, Really, to be very mindful of putting people in boxes that we have to really walk away from doing. Because sometimes it's the governments that promote this kind of ideology. It's extreme fractions. You know, if you take uh, the role ISIS plays, it's an extreme, violent group that happens to be Muslim. So we have to use this broad rhetoric that all Muslims are terrorists. That's harmful. Uh, and that can cause a lot of damage to our country and to our people. Well, and you say governments participate in this. We hear from our own American government, we're hearing rhetoric about foreigners. So those that are that are moving across the nations that are south of us, south of Texas, are being characterized and demonized in ways that really take away their humanity and the struggle that they have had, what they're fleeing from. We also hear this kind of demonization of others who are who are foreign. You said earlier that, you know, the, the characterization of all Muslims as terrorists. Mm. So this rhetoric that we're hearing from our own government here in America is problematic as well. And so that that's not new. We've mm. we've gotten versions of that for the past century at least, and the the, the victims of that rhetoric have changed over time. So how do we begin as Americans? to work within our own political system to change this conversation? Mm. To begin with, we have to, if you're, if you're looking at it from the perspective of religion, I think the Muslims have just arrived. They're the new kids in the block. Uh, I come from Sri Lanka. It's just a country that was colonized by the British, Dutch, and the Portuguese. Religion was forced down. Christianity was forced down the throat of Sri Lankan uh, Buddhists. And... Uh, there was a lot of things, injustices that were done to the natives. So violence is is pervasive. It is a, it is a human endeavor, I think. So it's not to say that this religion is violent. We have to go beyond that. And as we deconstruct and, and dismantle structures that embolden violence, I think uh, people who are mindful of peace and justice and equality 
we must stand together in solidarity. So as you've been doing this work, I imagine that you have had some moments where you have become frustrated. And I'm wondering, as I bring interviews to a close, I often ask my guests a pair of questions. So I'll ask, what is it that continues to frustrate you in the work? And then what, and then to pivot from that, to ask what it is that gives you hope in the work. And so, first of all, what is it that, that frustrates you right now? Uh, what frustrates me is that Islam and Muslims are highly misunderstood. All Muslims are considered to be Arabs. Only 15% of Muslims are Arabs. Now, I'm a South Asian Muslim. The rest of us, are most of us are from South Asia. India, Indonesia has the largest population. So to understand, to differentiate that there's no monolith, our community is as fractured as all communities. There's not one Islam, there's not one Muslim. So build a relationship even with one Muslim. Uh, it will make a difference. And I tell my Muslims, build a relationship even with one Christian. It is going to make a difference. But am I, am I also hearing correctly that it's important for Muslims to build relationships with Muslims of different ethnicities and different cultural backgrounds? Is that helpful too? Yes, absolutely. Inter, intra-faith is as important as interfaith, yes. Okay, and so as that frustration has been, has been there, uh, let's now turn and ask, what is it that, as you're doing this work, keeps you hopeful and keeps you buoyant, if mm. you will? Yeah. Thank you, David. That's my favorite question. With Omnia, um, Shantad, who is the president, has given me a special mandate. He wants me to build a movement of women activists. So I am really focusing on women activists because we know, I, I mean, I personally, being a woman, I believe we can do wonders. If every woman, I, I believe whenever I go to train a group, I believe there's a Rosa Parks in there. There's a Malala Yousafzai there. There is a Susan B. Anthony there. So hope is a beautiful thing. And women, especially young girls, they just, they, they are hungry. So if we can all speak a language that can unify us, and when we can teach that to people. Well, Soraya Dean, I have been very very impressed by just what you've told me today. I didn't know much about your work when we first began this interview. I have been so fascinated to learn all the things that you've been doing, not only here in America, but internationally. And your work with Omnia, Omnia is a, an organization that my listeners will know well because we interviewed Shanta, who, who you've mentioned, and we'll be interviewing other people from Omnia as well. I just want to say on behalf of my listeners, thank you for taking time today and thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. We've been speaking today with Soraya Dean. She is lead organizer for women's initiatives and partnerships with the Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership. She's a lawyer, an interfaith consultant, and an expert in nonviolent communication, dialogue, and conflict resolution. We've been speaking today in the context of her recent award, which she shared with other members of Omnia leadership, the Paul Caruso Award from the Parliament of the World's Religions. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. 
Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.